Welcome to episode 139 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our uh, guest uh, guests today for the interview are Dr. Steve Weber and Betsy Cooper from the UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Uh, I'll be introducing them shortly. Uh, for the news roundup, we're going to have Alan Cohn, who uh, comes to us from DHS and is now uh, working at Steptoe, uh, and Katie Castle, uh, an attorney in our International Regulatory Compliance Group for a matter of days. This is Katie's last appearance on the uh, uh, Cyber Law podcast, unless uh, her new job gets her in such hot water that she has to come on and defend her actions as an interview guest. But I don't think that will happen soon. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. Yeah, Katie so, is going dark. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to step out to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, why don't we get started? Uh, you know, we usually talk about cyber law policy, but uh, as the Trump administration staffs up, uh, everybody is repeating uh, the mantra that personnel is policy, and uh, there's lots of interesting personnel moves uh, um over the weekend, uh, we had the weird um, uh, opportunity to see the head of the National Security Agency, Mike Rogers, um, rumored to be about to be fired and about to be promoted. Uh, it looks as though uh, uh, there was an, an emerging consensus inside the Obama administration that he ought to be uh, removed from the National Security Agency directorship a year earlier than the termination of his term, probably because of multiple security breaches, uh, uh, but uh, also uh, because the Cyber Command stand-up uh, has not been going as fast or as impressively as uh, DOD expected or wanted. That's the rumor coming out of the Obama administration. And if you're wondering why it might have come out over the weekend or on Friday, it's because apparently at the same time um, uh, Mike Rogers was invited up to Trump Tower to talk to the uh, incoming administration about the possibility of taking Jim Clapper's job, which would be a substantial promotion uh, as the director of national intelligence. Uh, so it may be that the people who wanted to get rid of Mike Rogers are now uh, letting that be known so that it will uh, uh, demonstrate that they're not responsible for him. I think it actually probably makes him, I don't know uh, what you think, Alan. Uh, my guess is that running a rumor like that uh, is sort of doing him a favor with the Trump camp. Uh, they're saying, oh, so we're not promoting somebody that was part of the Obama team. We're uh, giving a job to somebody that the Obama team wanted to get rid of. Yeah, this was a really interesting turn of events. You have, you know, you had Mike Rogers, who's generally uh, well regarded. You have this uh, uh, this meeting happen, and then you have the knives come out, um, and and more sharply than than I think we've yet seen. Even though some of the other picks and rumors are pretty controversial. Um, yes, I agree. I think that that the rumor coming out probably helped his chances with the president elect. 
but I think this was probably more of a signal to the Senate than uh, and to Mike Pence than it was to uh, to the president-elect. It was odd the rationales that kind of were leaked out. Uh, number one, that he hadn't um, uh, notified the Secretary of Defense and the and the Director of National Intelligence of this meeting. Uh, this question about the the um, uh, the leaks and insider threat activity that had gone on, and I'm curious how much you think that can be laid at his feet. This question about the effectiveness of of offensive operations against ISIS again, um, I'm curious how much of that can be left uh, can be placed at his feet. And then this kind of general management critique, uh, which was hard to pull apart as to whether this was. Part and parcel of the of the concern of Roger's relationship with his two chains of command, or whether this was more of an endemic problem, was this a leading up or a leading down problem? So the uh, the the reason that there's this talk about uh, his um, the leadership of the organization has to do with the fact that he has pressed a very sweeping uh, reorganization of the National Security Agency through to largely completion, or at least to, to the point where it, it couldn't easily be undone and is now in the process of going through a shakedown cruise. Uh, and that always produces a lot of angst and uh, uh, criticism. Uh, so I'm not surprised there was criticism. It's, it's too early to tell whether it's um, uh, a problem or uh, a success. Um, uh, you know, reorganizations, you, know, you can never tell whether they're a problem or a success. Um, but uh, leaders get to do that um, in organizations, so I'm not surprised uh, either that he did it or that some of the people who are uh, disadvantaged by the reorganization might have the knives out. But I, I, I do think this is... This is I, I, I'm kind of astonished that the Obama team um, is clinging to the idea that they matter. Uh, they, this is part of a long process in which they are going to realize that uh, um, nobody's going to be clearing things with them that they're talking about uh, with the uh, um, uh, the incoming administration because um, their ability to shape events is getting shorter every day by one day uh, and. Uh, any policy that will take that will be in effect on January 21 needs to be sold to a completely different set of actors, and um, it is just a little bit of a surprise that uh, either the ODNI or the Secretary of Defense thinks that uh, um, they're entitled to uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, advanced notice about what's being said to people who will be replacing them. The other thing that I thought was interesting, just from a from a strategic perspective, Rogers seemed to be the first name to pop up in serious discussions. Um, who does? Who, although a military officer, doesn't seem to be coming at the world from a focus through the lens of Central Command uh, and Iraq, Afghanistan, and ISIS. And so, in a certain sense. Um, you know, if Rogers were not to end up uh, in that kind of a role, it, it it we have to see who else comes in. But it, it it could be as much a diminishment of this this cyber issue, which which people have raised questions about how much emphasis it's going to get. Um, you know, if we're just if we're if we're viewing security issues through that through that central command lens. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Well, I, I I wonder if it isn't fair to say that cyber command is overrated as a way of dealing with ISIS. 
uh, I, I've never thought that uh, uh, we were going to change the strategic um, uh, situation with respect to ISIS uh, uh, using Cyber Command. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, we're probably more likely to do it by using traditional espionage uh, um, to identify and then take out uh, um, the command structure of ISIS. But uh, you are right that um, a lot of people uh, um, who are being talked about are uh, people who come out of the Afghan uh, uh, campaigns uh, and, uh, you know, understandably so, was largely successful a, a against odds. Uh, so uh, a, a, some of those people were the very best that the uh, military had to offer. We, we, ought to, we ought to cover the other people who are going to be creating policy as well. Mike Pompeo, really just about the first name out of the box, and it's to run the CIA. Um, of course, uh, listeners to this podcast are familiar with Mike Pompeo because uh, he was a guest on the uh, um, uh, on the podcast uh, about a year ago. Uh, in fact, I have to say we've we've interviewed three, I believe, um, uh, uh, congressmen, and two of the three are already being mentioned as possible Trump Department uh, heads. Uh, Tom Cotton is also in the rumor mill for the Secretary, for Secretary of Defense. Uh, I, I think Will Hurd probably is the uh, uh, is now the dark horse, but uh, given his participation in the podcast, maybe uh, maybe they'll t- give him a look as well. There you go. And um, Jeff Sessions is going to head the Justice Department. Uh, a, both uh, Mike Pompeo and Jeff Sessions have been critical of Apple and um, inclined to believe that social responsibility includes the responsibility to, to uh, investigate and successfully um, uh, prosecute crimes. Uh, uh, and so um, to the extent that um, uh, the FBI has been allowed to pursue this, it, it's um, uh, dispute with Apple and the rest of Silicon Valley on unbreakable encryption uh, alone, uh, I think they're going to have more company uh, in the future, both from the intelligence community and particularly from the top of the Justice Department. Yeah, you definitely, um, both Sessions and Pompeo have been uh, vocal in their opposition. Pompeo going a little bit more deeply into the issue. It's interesting, in addition to his, you know, kind of uh, um, concerns about accessing encrypted information, um, he, you know, he's made the further statement that the use of strong encryption in personal communications May itself be a red flag, which um, which seems to go even further uh, down the road in this uh, in this discussion, and and raises some questions about how encryption will be viewed in things like financial services, healthcare, other places where it's it's being promoted in regulatory regimes right now. I wouldn't I wouldn't make too much of that to tell the truth. But, um, it, yeah, there are circumstances uh, where the encryption might tell you these are uh, uh, people who uh, have something to hide. Uh, it's incre- 
increasingly um, standard in so many circumstances, from SSL to uh, the financial industry, that uh, um, if you're using that as an indicator that the communicants are up to no good, you're probably misleading yourself. Uh, oh, the other change, which get, has got less attention, but which could be significant, is that um, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein is uh, no longer going to be ranking member on the uh, Intelligence Committee, but is going to uh, shift over to judiciary, which means that Mark Warner will come in as the uh, uh, leading Democrat on the Intelligence Panel. He has been... Well, this is probably true of any Democrat that would take Dianne Feinstein's seat. <clears throat> He's been more sympathetic to the, uh, 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 to Silicon Valley on the encryption issue than she has been. And so we may see less action on the, uh, intelligence committee's, uh, uh side to regulate encryption. Uh, so the Burr Feinstein bill, uh, uh, is not going to be just an intelligence committee bill. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't take much comfort from that if I were the, uh, the, the folks in Silicon Valley because it was always the case that any regulation of encryption that applied in the U.S. was almost certainly going to come from the Judiciary Committee anyway. And so now we will have a Judiciary Committee that's likely to be led by people who are uh, as enthusiastic for regulating as the intelligence community the committee was last term. So uh, this debate will go on. I don't think that uh, her views are, ch- are going to change, but we may see less of the intelligence committee. In it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, also, as you said, if personnel is policy, this gives her much more of a voice in the confirmation processes that will come through the Judiciary Committee, um, which can have that flow down effect as well. Okay, so the, to, to move on from uh, uh, talking about uh, personnel, we got to talk about some of the policy initiatives that have come out. Uh, the advertising industry has, you know, I have to say, finally launched a, uh, a campaign against malware, uh, tech malware or ad tech malware, uh, which is an increasingly troubling problem by, um, it, because it allows you to. Uh, target your malware so clearly using the tools that uh, AdTech provides. Um, and there seem to be no obvious um, defense against it. Uh, Katie, uh, what did the uh, industry actually propose? So it's the, it's the Trustworthy Accountability Group. They launched last week a Certified Against Malware program. Um, it's for companies involved in digital advertising. Um, and to be certified, the companies must register and pay a fee, and then they can either self-certify or um, obtain, obtain, you know, an independent validation certification. Um, and so to get the certification, they have to comply with the, the group's guidelines, um, and it just lists, you know, requirements that you'd expect, like having a des- designated compliance officer, um, having training, um, in, uh, having a risk analysis for malware, um, having an internal procedure to handle malware incidents, and um, making sure employees know um, and are educated on malware prevention and how to watch for malware and also escalate it uh, when necessary. Um, so it's, I have to say it, it kind of sounds like pablum. Uh, I, 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 I'd love to believe this is a really great initiative, uh, 
um, and it's a self-regulatory initiative, uh, uh, but it really seems to have been watered down to uh, uh, saying, you know, be sure to think about this and be sure to think about that. And, and, and my favorite is uh, uh, when they talk about continuously verifying that uh, there's no uh, uh, malware, it says you should scan a reasonable percentage of your total ad inventory. Yep. I mean, give me a break. That means you're not actually scanning all of your inventory to see if it's got malware in it. Uh, uh, for somebody to, uh, to say that's the standard and then to, to, to say that as a result of that, uh, the ad is, quote, certified against malware, unquote, uh, uh, seems to me uh, uh, these guys have... have let their skills as advertisers run away with their skills as cybersecurity guys. They, they do have a complaint process, which might maybe help to give it some teeth that you can complain to the the um, trustworthy accountability group and they'll investigate complaints into companies. And if companies are getting multiple complaints, they can revoke the certification and, and, and things like that. But um, but yeah. So yeah, I, you know it's uh, it, it's better than nothing. Uh, I'm glad they're recognizing the problem. I don't think this really addresses it. This has a feel of something they want to be able to point to uh, uh, to avoid further regulation by the government. Uh, but uh, that's just me. Yeah, uh, I, they're not the only ones coming out with uh, recommendations for how to improve security. I think uh, DHS. Uh, when we had Rob uh, Silverstein on our uh, program, uh, uh, he said that the uh, uh, there were a set of guidelines coming out on how to uh, build uh, Internet of Things uh, uh, networks and devices, uh, and those have now come out, right, Alan? Yes. Uh, DHS released its Strategic Principles for Protecting Internet-Connected Devices, and it's, uh, it's basically six principles um, incorporating security at the design phase, promoting security updates and vulnerability management, building on recognized security practices, prioritizing security measures according to potential impacts, promoting transparency across the Internet of Things, and connecting carefully and deliberately. Much of it is is good practice and kind of um, uh, and basic blocking and tackling. There are some interesting points and some good ones to consider. Uh, obviously, that that mythical kind of uh, enabling secure uh, kind of I- security in design is uh, is uh, is something that we all need to strive for. The, it is the, the document does point out the need for an end of life strategy for uh, IoT technology, uh, which is a which I think is an important recommendation for managing vulnerabilities for for uh, older devices, uh, as well as n- new ways of identifying and authenticating devices connected to the network. And uh, DHS, for example, has been giving grants, uh, research and development grants in that area, including uh, for using emerging technologies like blockchain to do that. Uh, So it's an interesting document. It's it's solid um, basic blocking and tackling, but some interesting uh, notes as well. Yeah, they don't actually talk about my favorite uh, suggestion, which is uh, remediation with a five-pound sledgehammer, uh, uh, because I think that's what we're going to have to do with a lot of this stuff, but uh, they do make the point that you know you you, you shouldn't be deploying stuff you can't upgrade, uh, uh, and they're quite right about that. Uh, uh, now, NIST is also, I mean, everybody's getting into this, and I suppose um, we're at that stage where uh, everybody's rushing to get out uh, 
uh, guidance that they think is probably not that controversial, but which, uh, if held until the next administration, will inevitably get caught in a six to 12 month loop with everybody coming on board and saying, wait a minute, I haven't checked off on that uh, otherwise anodyne proposal, so give me another three weeks to review it, uh, and so it'll never get out. So everybody is rushing to get these out. NIST has gotten out its small business security guidance. Uh, you looked at that, I know. Yes, yeah. It looks at, um, it provides some basic uh, security advice and some practical suggestions for small businesses. Uh, it seems very, very aimed at businesses that are just starting to think about their security. Um, you know, it first provides a background on information security and why it's important to small businesses. Uh, and then provide some advice on how companies can go about identifying risks, including, you know, templates and worksheets for going through a risk assessment and prioritizing different kinds of risks. Uh, it also uses the NIST framework. Um, to describe some of the tools that small businesses can use to protect information, like encryption and antivirus and firewalls. Um, and then it also gives advice that's specifically directed at users. So, you know, using strong passwords, keeping personal and business accounts separate, um, being careful on clicking on links in emails, some of that, you know, basic, basic advice that you can give to users to immediately help improve security. So it seems to me that the audience for this cybersecurity guidance from NIST is pretty much the same audience as the uh, audience for the FTC's business guide on cybersecurity. Uh, how do they how do they compare? Uh, I they're they're pretty similar. They both provide you know just a very basic level of guidance. Um, but I'd say the the NIST one definitely gets into some more more detail than the FTC guide, and um, in providing the templates and um, also some sample policy statements and procedural statements, uh, some of its guidance just seems a bit more uh, kind of on the ground and practical. Yeah, it, it feels a little more disciplined. Uh, the um the FTC guidance, uh, first, they're, they're obliged to uh, nod to all the things that they've gotten into uh, um, uh, consent decrees in the past, uh, uh, which means that they're organized by lawyers and not by people who are cybersecurity professionals. Uh, and it, 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 it feels to me as though the FTC's style, which is very lawyer-driven, um, is slowly being rendered outmoded by the proliferation of much more useful uh, advice for people who aren't lawyers but who want to do the job right, and especially if you want to be, if you want to get a, the advantage of the cybersecurity, of using the cybersecurity framework, which I think everybody does, uh, you need to follow NIST uh, and follow the FTC guides over it. I, I think that's right, Stuart. I think um, the FTC uh, is good at you know mentioning things that they think companies should be doing, but I think the NIST guidance goes a little bit further in helping companies figure out how to go about doing it. Um. All right. And uh, the last thing I want to cover, unless you guys want to jump in on some of these others, uh, is uh, uh, in the last week, two different um, uh, backdoors were discovered in cheap Chinese Android phones being sold in the United States. Uh, uh, in one case, there was a backdoor that actually enabled the uh, forwarding of the text 
lots of uh, the mess- you know, of, of SMS messages and uh, geolocation back to China, uh, and uh, uh, was uh, installed by a company called AdUps, which claimed later that uh, they'd been asked by carriers for that capability, and you know you wonder if the carriers had been asked by the Chinese government for that capability. And they said, well, we, we didn't mean to sell it in the United States. Uh, uh, right. Um, and then there was a second uh, um, set of uh, um, firmware upgrades that didn't actually extract information, but which enabled you to upgrade the firmware of uh, uh, on the uh, um, phone uh, without actually having to identify yourself securely. That is to say, uh, in the absence of any uh, um, uh, encryption or cert- uh, uh, digital certificate, uh, uh, you could simply send instructions saying, here's your new firmware, please install it. Uh, uh, so man-in-the-middle attacks were easy to uh, to carry out, uh, uh, and any arbitrary uh, uh, new code could be installed. Uh, uh, I, I, I thought that was particularly interesting because uh, uh, I have I keep hearing from civil liberties advocates that Apple's update procedure should not be viewed as a backdoor. It's completely different. It's a security upgrade opportunity, uh, but so was this um, Chinese firmware. It was just badly implemented, uh, and everybody's calling it a backdoor. And I think we ought to recognize that what Apple has is a backdoor as well. A backdoor that they say, and by and large, are uh, uh, using for uh, uh, for good purposes and to improve security. Uh, but it is a backdoor, and it's a backdoor that could have been used uh, to advance uh, uh, the social good of, an, of law enforcement as well. If Apple didn't prefer uh, a different business model, so uh, don't buy Chinese phones. That uh, would seem to be the uh, the answer. The uh, uh, the right uh, uh, proposal, especially not the cheap ones. Uh, uh, last uh, items, uh, Kaspersky is claiming that uh, it's the victim of Microsoft's uh, empire building and the antitrust violations. Reads like uh, you know uh, the 90s are back. Uh, um, uh, Rule 41 is still as dead as Generalissimo Franco, uh, uh, but there are more people uh, pretending that they can do something about it before December 1. Uh, uh, and um, uh, something like 40% of all American adults say they would uh, uh, give up sex for a year if they could avoid uh, uh, being hacked. Uh, it does tell you we've got a crisis. Uh, Alan, anything you want to say about any of that, uh, or Katie? No, just my only point on uh, I'd, I'd make on Kaspersky is not only does he uh, does he wax poetic about uh, Microsoft and its Defender product, but he also um, notes that he's uh, treated the company to a ref- uh, to a uh, a request to EU and Russian antitrust authorities uh, to direct Microsoft to stop pushing its independent AV software uh, into Windows 10. Yeah, you know, I, I, he's right in the sense that this is a feature that Microsoft has added that makes antivirus a lot less uh, attractive to ordinary uh, individuals. Uh, uh, but that's always been the case for the operating system. Every time you add a new feature, the guys who've been providing it with independent software lose out. Uh, uh, that That is the Microsoft business model. Uh, uh, and there are some real advantages to being the operating system 
provider, if you want to offer AV that can go deep into the system uh, uh, without disrupting its other functions. So I think he's, you know, I I feel for him on this uh, because his business is going to go away, but uh, I'm not sure that uh, it's... uh, it's a violation of the public interest. It probably is something that Microsoft should be doing. All right. Well, why don't we uh, get started on our interview with uh, uh, Steve Weber and Betsy Cooper. So UC Berkeley's Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity has put out some very interesting papers recently, especially this very challenging cybersecurity futures uh, uh, analysis. Uh, and uh, since Alan Cohn is in the uh, uh, conference room with them uh, and brought uh, uh, this uh, interview to uh, to us, I'll let Alan do the uh, the introductions and carry most of the interview. So, Alan, take it away. Great, thanks, Stuart. Uh, yes, and like Stuart said, we have with us two guests from the Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Uh, we have Professor Stephen Weber, who's the faculty director of the center. Uh, who interestingly went to medical school at Stanford and then decided to stay and get his PhD in political science as well. Uh, he's the author of a number of books, including The End of Arrogance, America in the Global Competition of Ideas, very prescient, uh, and Deviant Globalization, Black Market Economy in the 21st Century, also very prescient. Um, I happen to know Professor Weber as one of the world's expert practitioners of scenario planning um, and know that you've worked with over 100 companies and government organizations uh, in including uh, ones that I've worked with to develop scenario planning as a strategy tool. Uh, And we also have uh, Betsy Cooper, who's the executive director of the center. Uh, And Betsy has one of the broadest academic resumes I've ever seen, uh, with a law degree from Yale, a doctor of philosophy in politics from Oxford, a master's uh, in forced migration from Oxford, and a bachelor's degree in industrial labor and labor relations uh, from Cornell. And in addition to to work with the World Bank, uh, the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit in London, and Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. Uh, Betsy, you also spent time as both an attorney advisor and a policy advisor at the Department of Homeland Security, uh, part of that time attached to my office, which I was very, uh, felt very lucky, uh, to have you. So, um, so maybe we could just start with just tell us about what is the center and why did you set it up? So uh, the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity was established uh, at the end of 2014, um, while I was actually still at DHS, uh, and the, it really came out of a grant from the Hewlett Foundation. Uh, the foundation decided that they wanted to make an investment in a new area, and they, after doing a review, realized that really no foundations had yet invested in cybersecurity. And so they decided that they wanted to be the first, and one of the key initiatives that they wanted to put forward was to uh, build institutions at three universities, uh, MIT, Stanford, and Berkeley, in order to really get uh, this process going and get people to understand how important these issues are. And so at Berkeley, our concept of what we wanted to do focuses on the future of cybersecurity. So how technology will change in the next five to ten years, how the economy will change, how society will change, how politics will change. And we're thinking a lot about that right now. Um, and so we really have started to build our institution around those questions using the, uh, especially Steve's expertise in scenario planning to help us build that going forward. So we do research, uh, we build educational programmings, we do engagements. 
relations with governments, with companies, with media organizations. We really want to be out there, not just as an ivory tower institution on the Hill doing peer-reviewed publications, though we do that as well, but also to really have an influence on policymakers, on companies, and really in this space writ broadly. So let's talk about some of those scenarios that uh, you've put together. Um, the center published a report, Cybersecurity Futures 2020, uh, which presents five scenarios for thinking about kind of future challenges in cybersecurity. You know, several of these scenarios seem like they're happening now. Mm -hmm. uh, the new normal, Bubble 2.0, the intentional Internet of Things. Since, tell us a little bit about those, the construction of those scenarios and, and, and what surprised you the most in them and how long you think it'll be until they're fully upon us. Yeah, well, um, so Alan, let me make a, just a quick uh, uh, comment about the nature of scenario thinking that you already understand. But I want to be really clear. Um, scenario thinking is not about predicting the future. And so the first question on our minds is not, is this going to come true or when is it going to come true? Um, scenario thinking is really about orienting people's t thinking towards future kinds of landscapes, not so much so that they can predict again, but so that they can see better the kind of weak signals of really interesting changes that are taking place right around us. So when you say, you know, we, we, we published this a year ago, and yes, some of these things are starting to come true, I think of it more as um, elements that we could foresee by bringing together the kinds of inputs from people in the technology world, people in the economic world, people in the legal world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when you push those elements out a little bit and you combine them and you put them together and say what happens when X, Y, and Z all happen at the same time, you start to see possibilities that um, actually are really, really interesting, and then you see them more clearly when they happen. So I'll just take one example relating to one of our scenarios, um, experiments with the idea of essentially an asset bust in data-intensive companies and a significant decline in the market valuation. All sorts of companies that are today being valued not so much on the basis of the services they provide, but on the basis of the data they collect while they provide those services. Some of us may have noticed that uh, Twitter is in a little bit of trouble in the last few months. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the questions that this scenario asks is, if a company like Twitter or other companies like that were to approach or go bankrupt, what would they do? What kind of recoverable assets might they actually have to sell to raise cash? And the answer, of course, is their data sets. And so that sets up for us, well, there's a really interesting twist in the cybersecurity world. Today, we have criminals, criminal organizations, nation states, etc., trying to steal data from companies that are trying to protect data. In this world, all that data is available on the marketplace at fire sale prices. It's a really different game to play. And it raises a whole set of interesting new questions about what government might do in a world like that, what criminals might do in a world like that, and what technologies we'd need to have in place in order to protect people in a world like that. And that's really what we're looking for here. Yeah, and that was interesting to, 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 to read also in the sense that you have that change in the dynamic about the data. You also posit uh, the the market for people and yes. the market for expertise as well. Yes. Yeah, so uh, think again about what happened uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, to call out a historical analogy. Um, you have a set of experts in nuclear technologies who are suddenly looking for jobs. They're hungry. They've got expertise. The world wants their expertise. Some of the people who want that expertise are legitimate and some are not legitimate. The same thing is true of the very best data scientists, the very best cybersecurity experts, and all the human capital that all of us know in government and, by the way, in the Valley as well, 
is in deep shortage, and we want to talk with you a little bit about that later, what we're trying to do to address some of that shortage, when a bolus of that talent comes on the market in a very short period of time, interesting things start to happen. Um, as you know, the U.S. government did a lot of things to kind of soak up some of that talent um, from the Soviet Union when it collapsed. Would we need to do the same kinds of things here? Maybe. Yeah, it's 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 fast. So I'm imagining I'm, I'm imagining uh, uh, data scientists scientists by the side of the road with little cardboard signs <laughs> that say we'll do big, big data for small change. Yes, indeed. Um, and you know, this report has a number of fictions embedded in them. I didn't come up with that one, but maybe you know, in uh, the reboot for the scenarios one year on, we'll uh, try to think about incorporating that. But it's a really interesting <laughs> point. Um, uh, um, Stuart, in the sense that uh, we tend to think of certain assets as being really scarce and expensive and hard to get. And of course, market disruptions change that to actually suddenly they're scar- they're, they're um, abundant and cheap. And that's what we've seen in the technology industry over and over again over the course of the last 20 years. And those are the things that really change the game for commerce, for government, for security. And so we want to explore some of those possibilities. Again, not because we're certain they're going to happen, but because we're certain that if they were to happen, they would have really significant consequences, and we want to be ready for it. So some of the other things... So I thought the most interesting thing in the uh, um, uh, set of scenarios was in all of them were pretty much flooded with data. Uh, uh, that, yes. That's a, a, a theme. Uh, but in a couple of these, um, uh, the Omega uh, scenario, uh, the data were flooded with produces not uh, vast amounts of um, uh, categorized data or abilities to uh, predict uh, how uh, a, a variety of groups will behave, mm-hmm. but uh, it goes down to the individual level how how is this person going to behave and then uh, uh there's a whole discussion about the quantified self that, that seems to me to be rather similar in, in, mm-hmm. in the sense that data about your particular capabilities your actual emotions uh, uh becomes uh, uh critical to the uh uh, uh, to the internet of uh, uh, the, the way in which individual actions are predicted. Uh, uh, those two scenarios, I think, uh, say a lot of interesting stuff about the future. Yeah, we really appreciate that, Stuart, and you're actually not the first to notice that there are similarities uh, between the two in the sense that they both focus on individual predictions in different ways. Um, for the sensorium scenario, the quantified self scenario that you were referring to, really what we're focused on there is the ability to predict one particular thing, which is human emotion. So the idea there is that the proliferation of sensors over time combined with the power of new algorithms that are able to uh, make more granular predictions about individuals will combine together to allow us not just to get basic information about humans, whether it be our heart rates or our ability to, uh, you know, sense when brainwaves are occurring, but actually to understand how people feel at different points. And there are so many possible implications for that. One of the most uh, interesting on the legal space, since we're uh, sitting in a law firm right now, is we debate a lot in law about criminal intent and what is somebody's mental or whether they intended to do something. Now imagine if we have data that actually shows whether someone's emotions changed at a particular point in time. 
what more powerful evidence could you have in order to determine mens rea? So that's one of the reasons that I think that scenario is so interesting. You know, when you work in the technology industry, the question you're always asking yourself is, what do human beings want to do today that doesn't scale, and how can we figure out a way to scale it? And I would say that one of the things that many human beings want to do more than anything else is understand themselves and understand the individuals around them. And that can be for personal growth reasons. It can be for commerce reasons. It can be for all sorts of things. It can be for uh, legal reasons. Um, but today, you know, the only way you get anywhere close is by spending five years in a psychoanalyst's office. Technology people look at that and they say there has to be a more scalable way to do it. And that's what this scenario is experimenting with, the idea that there are lots of signals, biosignals, other kinds of signals coming off all of our bodies and all of our brains all the time, which are actually a lot more indicative of our mental state and our emotional state than anything any psychotherapist is ever going to be able to pick up. And when that is possible at scale, one of the things that, you know, it's easy to talk about the downsides of that, the threat side of that, but human beings are going to want that kind of insight about themselves. I want it. I bet everybody else in this room wants it too. I bet everybody else listening would like some of that insight. When we get down to predicting um, the actual conduct of individuals and we tie that into the sensorium where we're actually able yeah. to, to predict behavior and then see what the emotional uh, consequences of that behavior are, um, you know, it seems to me that we're on the verge of making love scalable. We're, yes. we're, we're going to allow, teach people to fall in love with their computers. Yes, in fact, I think people will probably remember the most uh, emailed article in the New York Times over the last couple of years was an article that said to fall in love with anyone, do this. Do you remember this? It was like a set oh, yeah. Of, yeah. All right. So that tells you about the demand for that kind of thing. Um, but it's also to be more prosaic. Um, in the marketing world, people used to talk about the segment of one, being able to understand an individual consumer so precisely that you didn't need to actually advertise any. Advertisements are designed for mass populations. When you're actually talking to a single individual, it's not an advertisement anymore. It's actually like self-awareness. And finally, um, you know, if you think about the, the, the landscape, the cyber attack landscape that we're used to, it's extra, it's like, it's like throwing a bunch of stuff all over the, wall and seeing if anything of it sticks. And so as a result, we see a landscape that's filled with spam and filled with this and that spear phishing attack. When you actually understand how to manipulate the emotional state of a particular individual, you can be much, much, much more precise with your attacks as well. And ironically, for on aggregate, the cyber attack landscape might seem much less dangerous precisely because we're so good at targeting particular individuals. I don't need to hack into Betsy's email if I can hack into President-elect Trump's email. So that's interesting. And it does perhaps kind of animate why these kind of huge troves of personal information are such attractive targets for all sorts of actors, um, that they, they begin to fill out those questions, those questions. It's interesting. I just came back from Dubai, uh, where I was this past weekend and they're already working on mm -hmm. these technologies. There is a display in the lobby at Emirates Towers, mm -hmm. you know, laying out their work, looking at, at, at designing exactly this technology. Yeah. Interestingly, I mean, the Dubai government has paid a lot of attention to the kind of turn to happiness as a, uh, replacement for gross domestic product. 
And so they're pushing forward some of the boundaries of this stuff, and it's not all bad, actually. And so, in, so in a sense, you know, you talked about finding weak signals. Are we beginning to see kind of strong signals yeah. of a lot of the things that you lay out in the scenarios? Yeah, well, um, I, I think they're strong. Uh, <laughs> you obviously think they're strong. Others may think they're weak. Uh, the point is that we have to be able to pay attention to them and put them in some context. Uh, they're not, you know, like everything else, there are patterns that are emerging. And being able to see just a little bit over the horizon, I think, again, is so important because it allows people like us to come back and say, if that were to be true three years from now, what will we then have wished people like us had been working on now so that we could be ready for those kinds of conditions? Um, you know, we look at the cybersecurity space and say, and this isn't a criticism, but I'll just say it, people tend to be very, very reactive. That's not going to be good enough in the future. Yeah, so let's turn to now then not being reactive. You just released a report today called Cybersecurity Policy Ideas for a new presidency. And, and in there, you have recommendations for uh, the new administration for the first 10 days, for the first 100 days, for the th- first 1,000 days. So so what is it that you think is most important for, for this new administration to get ahead of now? So I think we'd make some broad points and some specific points. So on the broad point, first and foremost, we think that this is a resetting of the playing field in a way we've never seen before. Uh, no matter what your politics, I think most people were surprised by the outcome of this election. And in contrast to a Clinton administration, in which we could have predicted with some degree of certainty at least the baseline of what cybersecurity policy would have looked like, this is an open playing field in which it's really possible to make big changes. And so we believe that if you have a president coming in who has talked a lot about business and using models from business to change government, well, one of the things you do in business is you sit down and come up with lots of ideas about how how to be creative in this space, and that's precisely what we want to see to happen here. And so we thought it was important to put out a report suggesting some specific ideas as a way to sort of galvanize this sort of engagement. Um, we could talk a lot about the different specific ideas because we did lay them out. I think possibly the one that uh, I feel strongly about uh, is the focus on really helping the cyber talent pipeline. So um, as we well know, uh, in this space, there are a lot of jobs that are available for people, and yet we just don't have the people to fill those jobs. And so we think that at all stages of the process, we need to do more, and government needs to be involved in collaboration with the private sector to do that. So we gave a number of suggestions. One of them, um, close to my heart, is loan forgiveness. Uh, as someone who left uh, school with a somewhere in the $200,000 of, of debt range, I very much appreciate this. And the idea here is people are afraid to go into cybersecurity for lots of reasons. They may be afraid of the technical issues, but one thing they're afraid of is, will these jobs automate and will they be exciting? Is this going to be me in the basement of the NSA with four computer screens for the rest of my life? Or will I be really engaged with, you know, thinking about how to develop, you know, really cool new technologies and responses? And more people are thinking about the former than the latter. Our theory is, if you provide the opportunity for students to have the ability to go into this field with less debt than they would have otherwise if they succeed in it, then more people will be willing to give it a shot. And if they do that, then you're going to start to get the stories out into the public domain that will lead more people to follow along. So we see this as a market well, I, correction. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't disagree more uh, mm-hmm. on, on this one. I think that uh, uh, what we should do in order to make sure we have plenty of talent that uh, isn't really costly is skip um, any graduate degrees and probably half of college. Uh, <laughs> uh, most of the people who are good at this got good at it without uh, learning it from professors uh, and 
we shouldn't force people into these massive tuition uh, uh, transfer schemes. Uh, uh, instead, we should just let people immediately start training and doing this, and they'll all get good jobs out of that. Stuart, you're trying to put me out of a job here, but... Um, I'll t- <laughs> I'm so sorry. What can I say? But there, there, I'll tell you that... You didn't spend all your time explaining why why, why people needed professors more than they uh, they realized. Uh, you yeah. also talked about this new declarative deterrent yeah. as something that ought to be in place in the first 10, uh, 10 days, and... I, I wasn't sure what you were getting at there. So, okay. what's the what's the short version? So the short version is um, we are a little bit disappointed with the conversation here in Washington, frankly, that's gone on in the past few years about norms, uh, as in like uh, there need to be a set of norms in place before the United States takes a set of significant actions um, in the cybersecurity realm in an open way, yeah. um, and we think that's actually too timid. Uh, we think when a new administration comes in, um, particularly an administration that came, comes into office with the reputation of being perhaps a little bit more aggressive uh, than a previous administration, it has the opportunity to actually lean into the norms problem and state very clearly what are the norms that the United States would like to see in the world, the ones that benefit us more than anyone else. And ultimately, we believe that the norm creation is not something you talk about, it's something you do. And norms result from what people choose to act on and what they choose to restrain themselves on. And we think the United States ought to lean into that, actually. And a new administration has a unique opportunity to set some rules and say, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're not going to do. Or and even, here's why. Or even more, as you're saying, to, to skip past the declarative part altogether and just start doing. Well, I think actually both in combination. I mean, obviously, the discussion about it is important because it signals both to Americans and to the rest of the world here's what we believe the boundaries ought to be that benefit us. And actually, if you break those boundaries, you're going to pay some cost for that. That's how norms – it's later when people sort of look at that process and start talking about it like, oh, those were the norms that we wanted, right? So the question really we've been asking ourselves is, what, what if we had any norms we want, what would we want? And we put forward a couple of them in the report. Just say one. I mean, we ought to be talking about a world in which states are held to account for – Cybersecurity um, attacks launched from their own territory. It's a it, it's a long term objective, but it was also a long term objective when people started saying we're going to hold states account for pirates who launch from their territory, or we're going to hold states to account for terrorists based on their territory. Doesn't mean we have to attack everybody. Uh, we did some things in Afghanistan that we did not do in Pakistan and vice versa in the face of that norm. But it sets an expectation and it tells the rest of the world what it is that we want. And we think, you know, this is an opportunity for the new administration to actually do that. And on a related note, we talk a lot about the role of the private sector in that space. So it's not just a matter of government standing up and saying, here's what we're going to do and here are the boundaries with which we, within which we operate. It's also about saying where we will bring in companies and what their roles are. So the debate in Washington over so-called active defense or hacking back, um, the related topics have been going on uh, pretty much every week now. I see a new report on these issues. And we're saying that those things should not be private full-time, but that there are opportunities for cabined periods of time in cabin situations for governments and companies to work together to respond to something, and that other states should be aware that that's a possibility. Ah, so, so now you've landed on the... Uh, my ears. 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. I was going to say you've landed on the uh, the the active construction of the Baker Doctrine as yeah. the as the new norms. <laughs> well, well, we'll give you the Baker Doctrine if you let us do some teaching now and again. <laughs> all okay. right, it's a, it's a deal. If you if you promise to teach people how to do active defense, uh, I'm all for it. We, we, uh, yep, so, we will. <laughs> so, uh, I I I, I want to uh, make sure that uh, before we close up, uh, we give you an opportunity to talk about stuff that, uh, in addition to what's come out, uh, things you're going to be doing uh, uh, in the future or that our audience ought to uh, know about. Yeah. So um, let, let me just mention two things. One, actually, Stuart, in response to your uh, thoughts about the, you know, the academic environment, um, we work in a professional school, a school of information, not a Department of Computer Science or Department of Political Science. And the degree, we're, we're launching a degree program next year, which is a professional master's degree, um, not a PhD program, but an online professional master's degree to train cyber operators. So it may not be going all the way to your view of um, people can learn by the themselves and get certified, but uh, we're actually more sympathetic to the view that not everybody needs um, an ex- a PhD or a liberal, full liberal arts education in order to be active and effective in this world. Um, I wouldn't call it an advanced vocational degree, but it's a professional mm-hmm. degree, and it combines a core technical expertise with a set of policy and legal knowledge to actually make people essentially into a workforce. So it, I think it meets some of what you're talking about. And one thing I'll add, Stuart, is that you know there is a certain sub- set of people who do get involved in this field, but they tend to be a very homogenous group coming from a very certain background engaged in a hacker community. We definitely need those people, but we feel that the cybersecurity field can draw from a number of different diversity planes, whether it be gender, ethnic diversity, or disciplinary diversity. I mean, here I am, a political scientist and lawyer talking to a bunch of lawyers about cybersecurity, right? We need more diverse people who can think about the regulatory policy questions as well, and this degree is going to provide provide uh, different ways for people to engage in exactly those fronts. So I, when you said you, had, you, you were in favor of disciplinary diversity, I frankly, I have to tell you, I thought uh, so people who have long discipline records could still get into the field. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. That's probably true, too. Discipline Absolutely. diversity as well. Well, great. Well, thank you very much to, uh, to Stephen Weber and Betsy Cooper from the Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity for certainly giving us some things to think about uh, concerning cybersecurity in the future. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. It's our pleasure. All right. Thanks to Steve Weber and to Betsy Cooper and also to Alan Cohn and Katie Castle for the news uh, roundup. Uh, uh, as always, we're uh, glad to get feedback. Uh, just send your comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave us a comment uh, uh, when you rate us for iTunes or other podcast aggregators. Uh, this has been episode 139 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, Coming up, we're going to have John Markoff, the New York Times uh, reporter and author of Machines of Loving Grace, talking about artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, We're going to have Scott Charney of Microsoft, one of the uh, uh, longtime graveyards in security policy, as well as Matthew Green, uh, the assistant secretary, uh, (laughs) sorry, the assistant professor uh, at uh, the uh, Johns Hopkins Information Security Institute and somebody whom I hope is never assistant secretary of anything in the government because we disagree about so much. Uh, uh, We hope you'll join us for all of those uh, episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 